you have your Bible this morning, please open to Luke chapter 11, although the scripture will be projected up on the screen. This week will be uh, a little different in that there are no sermon slides. <gasps> Gasp. We'll have to do this the old, the old fashioned way. I'll speak, you listen. Um, slides are prepared. There's a, there's a whole... There's a whole sermon, PowerPoint sermon, and it was not sitting well with me. The interpretation of the passage I'm about to cover just was not sitting well with me. And finally got the missing piece in my mind on Saturday, doing yard work, which is like a great way to, to get, get the mind working. So I'm really excited to share with you because... What the passage has to teach is simple but profound, and at the same time I will use my own experience preparing this week as a vehicle to do some additional teaching on how to interpret your Bible. So let me read the passage and then I'll walk you through the journey that I went through and then make some closing remarks. After the disciples asked Jesus to teach them how to pray and and he teaches them what we call the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Remember, in Luke, we get the shorter version. The fuller version is in Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And we said that this is a model for prayer. You don't have to pray these words exactly. Although, if you'd like to, use the words of the Lord's Prayer as you're saying them to bring to mind... um, other prayers that fall into those categories. We also said that the Lord's Prayer is so much different than the way most of us pray because it is so focused on God's glory and His will and His kingdom and less on my Christmas list, as it were. Not that God doesn't want us to bring our requests to Him, but even the Lord's Prayer instructs us what our requests ought to look like. What we should really be concerned with in this world. And then he tells two parables when he finishes. So let me read these parables. Luke 11, chapter 5, Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and goes to him at midnight, and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside, he answers and says, Do not bother me. The door has already been shut, and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Now, suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So, some interesting stories. 
parables. And remember, parables were Jesus' way of teaching truth to those who wanted to know truth and from hiding truth from those who don't want to know truth. And these are confusing stories, actually. If you read a lot of commentaries, especially on that first story, not much confusion on the second story. We, we understand that. It's the first story where we get confused. Because he, he makes a point at the end, and it sounds like the point is that God wants us to be persistent in prayer. And so when I made my outline for the sermon this week, I titled it Persistence in Prayer. And I have to admit, I made one of the cardinal mistakes that I was taught not to do in seminary. I looked at the chapter heading in my MacArthur Study Bible. And it said, the parable of the persistent friend. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is the story about being persistent in prayer. Because that's the way I've heard it used before. And I was taught in seminary to ignore those man-made chapter headings. They're not inspired. They're not God's word. They're somebody else's ideas of what that story is about. And the first version of the MacArthur Study Bible that came out, the only publisher they could find to let them use their translation of the Bible was the New King James. And the publisher already had those paragraph headings in there, and they had to stay in there. Those paragraph headings were not put in there by the MacArthur Study Bible team. And As the study Bible has gained in popularity, they've been able to use other translations of the Bible. Then they were able to get the NASB, which is the version MacArthur likes to preach out of, and it's the one that I preach out of, and now it's available in the ESV as well. When I took my Old Testament and New Testament survey courses, one of our assignments, which took forever but was very powerful, was obviously to read through the whole Bible. Which, interestingly enough, Master Seminary is one of the few seminaries left in our country that makes its students read the entire Bible. That ought to tell you something about why Christianity is in the shape that it's in in our country. And as we read, we were required to take each chapter of the Bible, and by the way, the chapters are also not inspired And the verse numbers are not inspired as well. In fact, the original Greek, all the letters just ran together. There were no spaces between words. You could save paper that way. So, But your brain can actually figure out where this word stops and this word begins. Yet... Because it's divided up by chapters for us and it helps us kind of break down the Bible into smaller, easier to manage chunks, we're running with those, those chapters. And they wanted us to, for each chapter, write a chapter title. And we had to get a Bible that had no chapter titles already written in it. So based on your reading of the chapter, what would you make the chapter title? 
And then we had to break that down to smaller paragraphs within each chapter. It took a long time, but boy, you really started to understand the flow of the whole Bible. And so what did I do this week? I opened my MacArthur Study Bible, and I saw the parable of the persistent friend, and the word persistent was stuck in my head, and I'm like, this is a sermon about being persistent in prayer. And then you start, this is what we all do, you start thinking of all the good things and the good illustrations you'd like to share about being persistent in prayer. And about that time that you prayed for something over and over and over again, and, and finally God answered that prayer. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God wants you to be persistent in prayer, but this story doesn't teach that. That's taught in other places in the Bible. And so some people are already nervous who know their Bible really well, and they've always said this story is about being persistent in prayer. Let me show you why this story is not about being persistent in prayer and why it led to so much confusion in the commentaries that I was reading. Let me read the story to you again. And obviously, the person going to the friend's house to ask for something would be parallel to us going to God to ask him for something. All right. Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. So this man's desperate. This is an honor-shame culture. You feed your guests when they arrive, no matter what time they arrive. This was my house. My wife's probably chuckling. Everyone knows when you show up at the Whitney house, you're going to have food put in front of you. And uh, although um, it's not maybe for me the healthiest food now, but if mom knows we're coming, there's going to be baked goods. Uh, and there's going to be a hundred different kinds of snack foods and chips and whatever, and she's just going to put this spread out because hospitality was a big deal in our house growing up. Well, even more so in Middle Eastern culture, hospitality, if you're not hospitable, you are publicly shamed. In fact, the whole community somewhat would have been shamed if there wasn't bread to be put out for these guests. Now, You can't just run down to the supermarket to buy bread in those days. It's a long, lengthy process to make bread. But in the community, you would have known who was baking bread that day. And so you knew which neighbor had extra loaves. What else is different about the culture is that the whole family would sleep together in one common area. So the whole family's asleep. This guy would have had to get up light a lamp, step over all of his family, wake everyone up. He just really did not want to answer the door. Go away. We are asleep. Find another house to go to. And this is his friend. You would think that a friend would say, hey, let me get that for you. But actually, if this is your friend in this culture, you actually treat visitors almost better than your friends. A friend, you could say, go away, 
But if a stranger said, I, I, I need something, it would be embarrassing and shameful to not meet their need. If you ever go to the Middle East on a mission trip or vacation, they tell you and warn you beforehand, be careful about asking people for help over there. Because they will drop everything to help you. And even if they don't know the location where you want to go, they'll pretend they do. Because it's shameful to say, I don't know how to get there. You know, map quested or whatever. Uh, Rich Engel, one of our elders, was telling us about the time he was in the Middle East and he forgot this rule and he offhandedly asked a merchant for directions and the merchant left the money out on the counter and walked them blocks to the train station. Right? And uh, he's like, oh, that, I, I was just wondering if you knew where the train station was. I didn't need a personal escort there. So this is the culture we're talking about here. But even in that culture, here's a friend who knows the manners and customs, how embarrassing it would be for you to not be able to feed your out-of-town visitor, right? People can't call ahead and say, I'm going to be there. They, they travel, and when they get there, they get there. And this guy showed up at night, and he's got no bread to serve him, and you don't have time to bake bread. So he's desperate. He goes to a friend, and the friend doesn't want to give him the bread. And the parable ends up saying, Jesus says, he'll finally give in and give the bread, not because he's a friend, which should be the right motive for giving the bread, but because of the persistence of the one asking for the bread. And and so then in our minds, we fill in a blank that isn't filled in. We go, oh, so therefore, God wants us to what? Bang on his door in the middle of the night and be rude and wake him up? And so the confusion in the commentaries is, this appears to be teaching us to be persistent in prayer, but God isn't like this quote-unquote friend who doesn't want to be bothered in the middle of the night. Okay, well, wait a minute. If... If we're going to read the parable that way and it's about persistence, then that's exactly how Jesus is portraying the Father. You're just going to have to keep banging on the door. And he'll finally answer not because he's your friend and is being loving, but because he just wants you to go away. Don't bother me. And so I was trying to somehow, like the other commentators were doing, gently massage this into, well, we know God's not like that, but he certainly wants us to be persistent. And so you end up doing violence to the text. No, wait. If, if we're going to say the text is saying you need to be like the, the, the guy who bangs on the door, then in the story that means God is the one who will, who will only answer if you're persistent because he doesn't want to be bothered anymore. And then you go on then to the second parable, which then has nothing really to do with the first parable. And that bothered me as well. Because Jesus doesn't teach in confusing ways like that. He, he's logical and everything flows. And when you finally find the right interpretation, it all goes 
Oh, oh, I see how all that fits together. The second story is really easy to understand. Fathers, if your kids come to you and want a loaf of bread, you're not going to give them a snake. And if they want an egg, you're, they're not going to give them a scorpion, right? And if you who are evil, meaning if you're sinful and selfish and you're not God, know that much. And we would trust that if we went to our earthly father and asked for something to eat, he wouldn't play a joke on us and give us a poisonous snake. Although some of you dads would think that's funny. But you would do it out of love and nobody would get hurt, right? But the point being, if sinful, fallen, imperfect earthly fathers know how to give good gifts, how much more would a perfect father know and want to give good gifts? It's a very common Hebrew way of arguing called the argument from the lesser to the greater. Well, that's actually what's happening in the first story as well. He's making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying, if an earthly friend will eventually give you what you want, how much more will God, who's not like this earthly friend, be eager to meet your dire requests? You don't have to keep banging on the door to bother God. He just wants you to come to him and ask. You're like, well, duh, why would Jesus go out of his way to teach that we need to pray to God and ask him for things? Because you're looking at the story through the lens of a modern evangelical who's been taught that you can go to God in prayer anytime you want. You've made that assumption, and I made that assumption that that's exactly where the disciples are coming from. But that's not the case. And I am convicted that there are people in this room today who are afraid to pray to God. You are afraid. You don't have confidence. I know who you are because that was me and that was my wife before we got good teaching. We, we were raised in high church environments. High church Lutheranism, high church Catholicism. You don't just go to God. In fact, I love this story. My wife likes to tell a lot of her disciples. And when we get people, new Christians, or even people who say they've been Christians a long time in counseling, and you sit them down and you say, let's pray, go ahead and start. Man, nine times out of ten, they're like, should I be doing this? What if I say the wrong thing? You know, they're, they're trying to fold their hands the right, the right way. In my house, we prayed right before meal, and that was pretty much it. And it was the same memorized prayer. Prayer was for Sunday morning, and the pastor-priest figure said the prayers. And they were printed in a handout in the bulletin. And he said the prayer, and then he said this line, and we would respond with a response. He would say something and then we would say, Lord, hear our prayers. 
And for some of you, you're like, yeah, that's the way I grew up, and that was very natural. And for other people walking into that environment, they're like, this is kind of weird. It sounds cultish, you know. Everyone in the same tone of voice, Lord, hear our prayers. And so when we became new believers, when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ and weren't placing our faith in our baptism or our upbringing or the fact that somebody just told us we were Christian, when we repented of our sins and believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we had to learn how to pray. And this sweet lady, a sweet friend of ours, was telling Jennifer's small group once about how God helped her find her keys that day. And Jennifer was thinking, really, God helped you find your keys? Tell me how this works. Oh, I prayed to him to ask me to find my keys. And she's thinking, as, as, as a good Catholic, God is way too important and busy to help his people find their keys. I mean, he's got wars and famines and, right, dictators to overthrow and don't bother me with your missing keys. And what a, what a new concept for her. Right? Well, if you were desperate and had lost something at home, wouldn't you go to your parents and ask them for help? Because they have more wisdom than you have? You know, great wisdom, like where's the last place you left them? (laughs) And now it's all falling into place here. We're assuming that the disciples have this robust prayer life with the Father. No, these men were told by the religious leaders in their community that prayer is for the religious leaders In the community. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus saying, When you pray, don't pray like the Pharisees who get up in public and pray these long, lengthy, lengthy, impressive prayers to impress people. You go to your prayer closet and have this intimate one on one fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. That we can boldly approach the throne of grace through Jesus Christ. I know there's got to be people here this morning that are like, I don't know. I'll go to the pastor and he can pray for me. Or I'll go to one of these super spiritual people in the church and they can pray for me. I would love to pray for you. Even more though, I would love to teach you how you can pray to the Father for yourself. That's so different. This is radically different. We're just used to to it. But in this context, this is radically different. So when we read the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, they're intrigued and want to know how to pray. Not, hey, we pray all the time, but maybe we're praying the wrong way. Teach us the right way to pray. And, and, And for sure, to be certain, the Lord's Prayer teaches us the right things to be praying about it is a model prayer but what jesus is saying at the end of the prayer to these men and by extension to us is here's the point god wants you to ask and you don't have to bang on the door at the middle of the night and manipulate and cajole him into listening 
That's the way earthly friends are. And they'll eventually give in because it's the right thing to do. But how much more would a holy father in heaven want to answer the door if you knock? And so Jesus, in this beautiful Hebraic poetic way, repeats three different ways. Remember, two is for emphasis. Three is for the ultimate emphasis. God is holy, holy, holy. Ask, seek, knock. God wants you to come to him in prayer. God wants you to come to him in prayer. So for many of you, this is just reinforcing what you already believe. But for, I bet, quite a few of you this morning, this is paradigm shift kind of stuff. No, really, you, through a relationship with Jesus Christ, can now call God Abba Father, and you can pick up the phone, and you can call any time of night. And you can ask for good things. Because if earthly fathers know how to give good things and they're sinful, how much more can a perfect heavenly father know what to give you? Now, little caveat here. We've been saying this all through the Lord's Prayer. God has a much different definition of good things than we do. In fact, many of the things we think are good things would be awful for us. If you got everything you wanted on your wish list. We would be spoiled. We would be materialistic. We would set our minds on things below. And our faith muscle would be wimpy. And so Jesus teaches us the things he wants us to pray for. And then when he's done teaching us the things he wants us to pray for. He's like, now ask all you want. God, I want to see your name made holy here on earth. Yes. You don't have to keep banging on that door. God's ready to answer that prayer. I want to see your kingdom come, not mine. Wonderful. I want to see your will be done on earth like like it is in heaven. Ready to answer that prayer. This word persistence then, which I got all hung up on, really isn't even the best translation of the Greek word. I I love my NASB. But at second service, Nathan's going to get the biggest grin on his face when he hears me say that I am more and more and more becoming convinced that the ESV is a better translation. I'm almost ready to make the switch. And... My wife uses an ESV and all the kids have one. Then they have to switch over to their NAS to hear their father preach and their husband preach. But the ESV uses the word impudence. Impudence. So let me, let me reread that and put in the word impudence and then define impudence for you. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, which he should... Because he's his friend, he should get up. Yet because of his impudence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. 
Impudence is shameless boldness, impertinence. It's got a negative connotation. You know, this is that neighbor who can't take a hint. (laughs) You know, he's not going away, is he? I'm going to have to get up and give him the bread. God's not telling us to be impudent. See, we, we want the passage to say God wants us to be persistent, but it's not what it's teaching. He's saying that we don't have to be impudent. You don't have to twist God's arm. He's ready to give good gifts because he's not like the earthly friend and he's not like the earthly father. He's so much better of a friend and so much better of a father. I mean, we all have sinful mixed motives. Sometimes when we ask our friends for stuff, they give out of the love of their heart mixed with, I don't want them to think that I'm cheap. Or I don't want them to think that I'm not generous. Right? So then you go, oh, here, no, take it, please. We have plenty. And then the door closes and it's like, oh, there goes my grocery budget this week. You know, God's not like that. That's what it's teaching. You can go to him in prayer not thinking, what manipulative, arm-twisting kind of strategy am I going to have to use to get God to cough up the goods. He is ready to give the good gifts. Again, with the caveat, though, that he knows what the good gifts are. And Luke specifically uses the best gift of all. How much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? James says every good and perfect gift. Matthew says... uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, good things. All of them are true. But who's the Holy Spirit? He's our advocate. He's our counselor. What does James say? Anyone who wants wisdom, ask, and God gives generously. Right? Most of us don't think we need wisdom. I got it all figured out. I know what I need, and I'm going to go ask God for it. How prideful, how foolish, how presumptuous. When you ask for the Holy Spirit, you're asking that that the Holy Spirit would more and more guide and superintend your life. You're asking for more fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and the one we all love, self-control. You see, you start plugging those into your prayer requests. Lord, Father, I'm begging you, give me more self-control. What, you really think you're going to have to twist God's arm and keep banging on the door for that one? That's a, that's a request God loves to give. Yes, my children want more self-control. They want more of the Holy Spirit. They want to be more led by the Spirit and not the flesh. So this this word translated persistence is actually impudence. It literally means without shame. Without shame. Not, Not in a good way, 
I mean, when we come to God and he forgives us of all our sins and cleanses us, we can be without shame. But you know what shameless means. This guy pounding on the door is shameless. I don't care if your whole family's going to wake up. I need bread because I'm going to look like a fool tomorrow. I could care less that your whole family's going to have to wake up. And I'm not going on to the next house because you're awake and I know you've got bread. Right? So this impudence is, is not something God wants from us. Once this clicked for me, I'm like, oh. See, I'm caught up in thinking, why would Jesus have to tell anyone that God wants them to pray for him? Because there's lots of people who don't think God wants them to pray. I don't want to bother God. He's so big and scary and distant. And I don't want to come to him. And the disciples were impressed with Jesus' prayer life and said, teach us to pray. How do you do that? And if we're going to make disciples of Jesus Christ, one of the most important things you're going to teach people is how to pray. And that starts with teaching people God wants you to pray to Him. To be honest and authentic and transparent with them. Folks, He already knows your heart. You're not hiding anything from Him. In, a, in many ways, prayer, we're more the beneficiary. God is unchangeable. We're changeable. Prayer changes us. Now, I will say that in ways that we won't understand until we get to heaven, in some real way, our prayers are efficacious. They're meaningful. God works through them. And you're like, well, if he already knows what he's going to do, and if he's sovereign, and if he's preordained things, then why are we, why are we praying? Because he tells us to pray, and he tells us that it's meaningful. And the Bible says that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much. How does that work? I don't know. You don't know. We live by faith. Part of living by faith is praying to a God who already knows everything. It's not like we're uh, letting him in on something that he didn't know about. And he's like, oh, you're right. I need to get on that. No, it, it, it's for us. It's something he does for us. And in the same way that when your children come to you, right, and they're excited because they've made some discovery, and you go, wow, that is amazing, and you're like, of course. <laughs> but you don't go, well, duh, because you love your children, and you're excited to see them discover things. And how much more does your heavenly Father want us to go to him and say, here's what I'm discovering. 
Lord. Here's what I discovered in your word. And this, this is pleasing to God. I would l- like to glorify you with my life, Lord. And if you think giving me this thing or changing this situation would be beneficial for me. See, that's a different prayer request than I want this, I want this, I want this. I'll close with a personal illustration. As you know, or many of you know, I've been really struggling with my, my health. Um, been losing weight, lost over 10 pounds, just not digesting food well. Stuff I've always been able to eat, just can't find foods that I could eat. And for some of you, you're like, I hate you, you lose weight. <laughs> when I'm sick, the opposite happens. And, uh, and I've been persistent in prayer. Lord, heal me. Lord, please heal. I'm tired of feeling miserable. I'm tired of feeling like I have no energy. And then it was starting to get to my mood. I don't think I'm ever going to get better. I don't even want to eat anymore because everything hurts. And then I began to change my prayers. And praying through this sermon series on the Lord's Prayer reminded me, God loves me, and he saved me, and he died for me. Why would he go through all that if he doesn't care for me? Because you begin to, to doubt when you're chronically sick, right? Maybe, maybe I'm in sin, or maybe, I don't know, maybe he's got other things to do. And my prayer request changed to, Lord, I love you. I know you've called me to lead my family. I know you've called me to shepherd the flock. And I don't have the energy to do it anymore. And I confess to you that I never had the energy on my own to do it anyways. And so please forgive me for the pride of thinking I could do this on my own strength. And if you would restore my health, I would like to continue to lead my family and shepherd this flock. But thy will be done and not my own. And I have had a miraculous turnaround. I, I'm through some diet changes and some other things. But God was waiting for that change to happen in my heart. And I'm putting weight back on and I have energy. Did eight hours with R.C. Villapondo in my backyard yesterday replacing rotted out railroad ties. Have you ever picked up a railroad tie? Good golly. Eight hours in the hot sun playing Casey Jones. (laughs) Went to bed exhausted and just woke up so full of energy. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm ready to preach this morning. Ready to, to serve. And I know it's not my strength. And I'm learning more and more how utterly dependent we are on God for everything. And so I could go to my father and, and say, not heal me because I'm tired of feeling lousy, but because I had to keep going to him in prayer, slowly my prayer request changed to, okay, forget about feeling good. 
Forget about the vanity of, you know, I was just tired of people saying, gee, you look really thin. Thanks, that's really um, emasculating, you know. Um, let's fatten you up. It's, it's not that. It's not what you think. I love to exercise. I exercise three or four times a week. I like to lift weights. I'm, I'm as vain as the next guy. I want to look good. Hard to look good when you're wasting away. And so God's helping purge some vanity out of my soul. So the prayer request got down to, I don't have to look good. I don't even have to feel good. I just want the energy to, to do my job. Okay. And hopefully maybe some of those other things will come back. But they're not that important to me anymore. You know? They're not that important to me anymore. What's important to me is that I have the strength to serve my family and serve, serve my God. And if that means that's this much, then that'll be exactly as much God says I need for those tasks. And, um, yeah, I might not be climbing any mountains or bench pressing 200 or more pounds. I'm not even sure why those things are important to us as men when we're young, but they just seem to be. They make us feel vigorous and manly and capable. But the things that God wants us to accomplish as Christians in life really have nothing to do with that. Really have nothing to do with that. The things of eternal benefit require spiritual strength. And Jesus says, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So I, I want to close today by inviting you to pray before you leave. And if you've never really prayed before, we don't need to know. I don't want you to be embarrassed. But let's spend a little time quietly in prayer. Because God wants us to pray. God wants us to pray.